Chapter seventy eight of the Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Procès Verbal. When the king re entered his room, he signed the order to consign Monsieur de Rohan to the Bastille. The Count de Provence soon came in and began making a series of signs to Monsieur de Bertoia, who, however willing, could not understand their meaning. This, however, the Count did not care for, as his sole object was to attract the king's attention. He at last succeeded, and the king, after dismissing Monsieur de Bertoia, said to him, "'What was the meaning of all those signs you were making just now? I suppose they meant something.' undoubtedly but oh you are quite free to say or not sire i have just heard of the arrest of monsieur de rohan well and what then am i wrong to do justice even on him oh uh, no brother i did not mean that i should have been surprised had you not taken part somehow against the queen i have just seen her and am quite satisfied oh sire god forbid that i should accuse her the queen has no friend more devoted than myself then you approve of my proceedings which will i trust terminate all the scandals which have lately disgraced our court yes sire i entirely approve your majesty's conduct and i think all is for the best as regards the necklace Pardieu it is clear enough monsieur de rohan has been making himself great on a pretended familiarity with the queen and conducting in her name a bargain for the diamonds and leaving it to be supposed that she had them it is monstrous and then these tales never stop at the truth but add all sorts of dreadful details which would end in a frightful scandal on the queen yes brother i repeat as far as the necklace is concerned you were perfectly right what else is there then sire you embarrass me the queen has not then told you oh the other boastings of monsieur de rohan the pretended correspondence and interviews he speaks of all that i know is that i have the most absolute confidence in the queen which she merits by the nobleness of her character it was easy for her to have told me nothing of all this but she always makes an immediate appeal to me in all difficulties and confides to me the care of her honour i am her confessor and her judge sire you make me afraid to speak lest i should be again accused of want of friendship for the queen but it is right that all should be spoken that she may justify herself from the other accusations well what have you to say let me first hear what she told you she said she had not the necklace that she never signed the receipt for the jewels that she never authorized monsieur de rohan to buy them that she had never given him the right to think himself more to her than any other of her subjects and that she was perfectly indifferent to him ah she said that most decidedly 
then these rumours about other people what others why if it were not monsieur de rohan who walked with the queen how do they say he walked with her the queen denies it you say but how came she to be in the park at night and with whom did she walk the queen in the park at night doubtless there are always eyes ready to watch every movement of a queen brother these are infamous things that you repeat take care sire i openly repeat them that your majesty may search out the truth and they say that the queen walked at night in the park yes sire tete-a-tete i do not believe any one says it unfortunately i can prove it but too well there are four witnesses one is the captain of the hunt who says he saw the queen go out two following nights by the door near the kennel of the wolf-hounds here is his declaration signed the king trembling took the paper the next is the night watchman at trianon who says he saw the queen walking arm in arm with a gentleman the third is the porter of the west door who also saw the queen going through the little gate he states how she was dressed but that he could not recognize the gentleman but he thought he looked like an officer he says he could not be mistaken for that the queen was accompanied by her friend madame de lamotte her friend cried the king furiously this last is from the man whose duty it is to see that all the doors are locked at night he says that he saw the queen go into the baths of apollo with a gentleman the king pale with anger and emotion snatched the paper from the hands of his brother it is true continued the count that madame de lamotte was outside and that the queen did not remain more than an hour the name of the gentleman cried the king this report does not name him but here is one day to the next day by a forester who says it was monsieur de charny monsieur de charny cried the king wait here i will soon learn the truth of all this end of chapter seventy eight recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter seventy nine of the Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Last Accusation As soon as the King left the room, the Queen ran toward the boudoir and opened the door, then, as if her strength failed her, sank down on a chair. Waiting for the decision of Monsieur de Charny, her last and most formidable judge. He came out more sad and pale than ever. "'Well,' said she. "'Madame,' replied he, "'you see, everything opposes our friendship. 
there can be no peace for me while such scandalous reports circulate in public putting my private convictions aside then said the queen all i have done this perilous aggression this public defiance of one of the greatest nobles in the kingdom and my conduct being exposed to the test of public opinion does not satisfy you oh cried charny you are noble and generous i know but you believe me guilty you believe the cardinal i command you to tell me what you think i must say then madame that he is neither mad nor wicked as you called him but a man thoroughly convinced of the truth of what he said a man who loves you and the victim of an error which will bring him to ruin and you well to dishonor Mon Dieu. this odious woman this madame de la motte disappearing just when her testimony might have restored you to repose and honor she is the evil genius the curse of your reign she whom you have unfortunately admitted to partake of your intimacy and your secrets oh sir yes madame it is clear that you combined with her and the cardinal to buy this necklace pardon if i offend you stay sir replied the queen with a pride not unmixed with anger what the king believes others might believe and my friends not be harder than my husband it seems to me that it can give no pleasure to any man to see a woman whom he does not esteem i do not speak of you sir to you i am not a woman but a queen but as you are to me not a man but a subject i had advised you to remain in the country and it was wise far from the court you might have judged me more truly too ready to condescend i have neglected to keep up with those whom i thought loved me the prestige of royalty i should have been a queen and content to govern and not have wished to be loved i cannot express replied charny how much your severity wounds me i may have forgotten that you were a queen but never that you were the woman most in the world worthy of my respect and love sir i think your absence is necessary something tells me that it will end by your name being mixed up in all this impossible madame you say impossible reflect on the power of those who have for so long played with my reputation you say that monsieur de rohan is convinced of what he asserts those who cause such convictions would not be long in proving you a disloyal subject to the king and a disgraceful friend for me those who invent so easily what is false will not be long in discovering the truth lose no time therefore the peril is great retire and fly from the scandal which will ensue from the approaching trial i do not wish that my destiny should involve yours or your future be ruined i who am thank god innocent and without a stain on my life i who would lay bare my heart to my enemies could they thus read its purity will resist to the last 
for you might come to ruin defamation and perhaps imprisonment take away the money you so nobly offered me and the assurance that not one movement of your generous heart has escaped me and that your doubts though they have wounded have not estranged me go i say and seek elsewhere what the queen of france can no longer give you hope and happiness from this time to the convocation of parliament and the production of witnesses must be a fortnight your uncle has vessels ready to sail go and leave me i bring misfortunes on my friends saying this the queen rose and seemed to give charny his conge he approached quickly but respectfully your majesty cried he in a moved voice shows me my duty it is here that danger awaits you here that you are to be judged and that you may have one loyal witness on your side i remain here perhaps we may still make your enemies tremble before the majesty of an innocent queen and the courage of a devoted man and if you wish it madame i will be equally hidden and unseen as though i went during a fortnight that i lived within a hundred yards of you watching your every movement counting your steps living your life no one saw me i can do so again if it pleases you as you please replied she i am no coquette monsieur de charny and to say what i please is the true privilege of a queen one day sir i chose you from every one i do not know what drew my heart towards you but i had need of a strong and pure friendship and i allowed you to perceive that need but now i see that your soul does not respond to mine and i tell you so frankly oh madame cried charny i cannot let you take away your heart from me if you have once given it to me i will keep it with my life i cannot lose you you reproached me with my doubts oh do not doubt me <sighs> said she but you are weak and i alas am so also you are all i love you to be what cried she passionately this abused queen this woman about to be publicly judged that the world condemns and that her king and husband may perhaps also in turn condemn has she found one heart to love her a slave who venerates her and offers her his heart's blood in exchange for every pang he has caused her then cried she this woman is blessed and happy and complains of nothing charny fell at her feet and kissed her hands in transport at that moment the door opened and the king surprised at the feet of his wife the man whom he had just heard accused by the comte de provence end of chapter seventy nine recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter eighty of the Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Proposal of Marriage The Queen and Charny exchanged a look so full of terror that their most cruel enemy must have pitied them. 
Charny rose slowly and bowed to the king, whose heart might almost have been seen to beat. Huh! cried he in a hoarse voice. Monsieur de Charny? The queen could not speak. She thought she was lost. Monsieur de Charny, repeated the king, it is little honorable for a gentleman to be taken in the act of theft. Of theft murmured charny yes sir to kneel before the wife of another is a theft and when this woman is a queen his crime is called high treason the count was about to speak but the queen ever impatient in her generosity forestalled him sire said she you seem in the mood for evil suspicions and unfavorable suppositions which fall falsely i warn you and if respect chains the count's tongue, I will not hear him wrongfully accused without defending him. Here she stopped, overcome by emotion, frightened at the falsehood she was about to tell, and bewildered because she could not find one to utter. But these few words had somewhat softened the king, who replied more gently, "'You will not tell me, madame, that I did not see Monsieur de Charny kneeling before you?' and without your attempting to raise him. Therefore you might think, replied she, that he had some favor to ask me. A favor? Yes, sire, and one which I could not easily grant, or he would not have insisted with so much less warmth. Charny breathed again, and the king's look became calmer. Marie Antoinette was searching for something to say, with mingled rage at being obliged to lie and grief at not being able to think of anything probable to say. She half hoped the king would be satisfied and ask no more, but he said, "'Let us hear, madame, what is the favor so warmly solicited which made Monsieur de Charny kneel before you? I may, perhaps, more happy than you, be able to grant it.' She hesitated. To lie before the man she loved was agony to her, and she would have given the world for Charny to find the answer, but of this he was incapable. "'Sire, I told you that Monsieur de Charny asked an impossible thing.' "'What is it?' "'What can one ask on one's knees?' "'I want to hear.' "'Sire, it is a family secret.' There are no secrets from the king, a father interested in all his subjects, who are his children, although, like unnatural children, they may sometimes attack the honor and safety of their father. This speech made the queen tremble anew. Monsieur de Charny asked, replied she, permission to marry. Really? cried the king, reassured for a moment, then after a pause, he said, but why should it be impossible for monsieur de charny to marry is he not noble has he not a good fortune is he not brave and handsome really to refuse him the lady ought to be a princess or already married i can see no other reason for an impossibility therefore madame tell me the name of the lady who is loved by monsieur de charny and let me see if I cannot remove the difficulty. 
the queen forced to continue her falsehood replied no sire there are difficulties which even you cannot remove and the present one is of this nature still i wish to hear replied the king his anger returning charny looked at the queen she seemed ready to faint he made a step toward her and then drew back how dared he approach her in the king's presence oh thought she for an idea something that the king can neither doubt nor disbelieve then suddenly a thought struck her she who has dedicated herself to heaven the king cannot influence sire she cried she whom monsieur de charny wishes to marry is in a convent oh that is a difficulty no doubt but this seems a very sudden love of monsieur de charny's i have never heard of it from any one who is the lady you love monsieur de charny the queen felt in despair not knowing what he would say and dreading to hear him name any one but charny could not reply so after a pause she cried sire you know her it is andrea de tavernay charny buried his face in his hands the queen pressed her hand to her heart and could hardly support herself mademoiselle de tavernay but she has gone to saint denis yes sire replied the queen but she has taken no vows no but she is about to do so we will see if we can persuade her why should she take the vows she is poor said the queen that i can soon alter madame if monsieur de charny loves her the queen shuddered and cast a glance at the young man as if begging him to deny it he did not speak and i dare say continued the king taking his silence for consent that mademoiselle de tavernay loves monsieur de charny i will give her as dowry the five hundred thousand francs which i refused the other day to you thank the queen monsieur de charny for telling me of this and ensuring your happiness charny bowed like a pale statue which had received an instant's life oh it is worth kneeling again for said the king the queen trembled and stretched out her hand to the young man who left on it a burning kiss now said the king come with me monsieur de charny turned once to read the anguish in the eyes of the queen End of chapter 80. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 81 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Saint Denis. The Queen remained alone and despairing so many blows had struck her that she hardly knew from which she suffered most how she longed to retract the words she had spoken to take from andrea even the chance of the happiness which she still hoped she would refuse but if she refused would not the king's suspicions reawaken and everything seem only the worse for this falsehood she dared not risk this 
she must go to andrea and confess and implore her to make this sacrifice or if she would only temporize the king's suspicions might pass away and he might cease to interest himself about it thus the liberty of mademoiselle de tavernay would not be sacrificed neither would that of monsieur de charny and she would be spared the remorse of having sacrificed the happiness of two people to her honor she longed to speak again to charny but feared discovery and she knew she might rely upon him to ratify anything she chose to say three o'clock arrived the state dinner and the presentations and the queen went through all with a serene and smiling air when all was over she changed her dress got into her carriage and without any guards and only one companion drove to saint denis and asked to see andrea andrea was at that moment kneeling dressed in her white peignoir and praying with fervor she had quitted the court voluntarily and separated herself from all that could feed her love but she could not stifle her regrets and bitter feelings had she not seen charny apparently indifferent toward her while the queen occupied all his thoughts yet when she heard that the queen was asking for her she felt a thrill of pleasure and delight she threw a mantle over her shoulders and hastened to see her but on the way she reproached herself with the pleasure that she felt endeavoring to think that the queen and the court had alike ceased to interest her come here andrea said the queen with a smile as she entered end of chapter eighty one recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter eighty two of the queen's necklace by alexander dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain a dead heart andrea continued the queen it looks strange to see you in this dress to see an old friend and companion already lost to life is like a warning to ourselves from the tomb madame no one has a right to warn or counsel your majesty that was never my wish said the queen tell me truly andrea had you to complain of me when you were at court your majesty was good enough to ask me that question when i took leave and i replied then as now no madame but often said the queen a grief hurts us which is not personal have i injured any one belonging to you andrea the retreat which you have chosen is an asylum against evil passions here god teaches gentleness moderation and forgiveness of injuries i come as a friend and ask you to receive me as such andrea felt touched your majesty knows said she that the tavernais cannot be your enemies i understand replied the queen you cannot pardon me for having been cold to your brother and perhaps he himself accuses me of caprice my brother is too respectful a subject to accuse the queen said andrea coldly the queen saw that it was useless to try and propitiate andrea on this subject so she said only well at least i am ever your friend your majesty overwhelms me with your goodness do not speak thus cannot the queen have a friend 
I assure you, madame, that I have loved you as much as I shall ever love anyone in this world. She colored as she spoke. You have loved me, then you love me no more? Can a cloister so quickly extinguish all affection and all remembrance? If so, it is a cursed place. Do not accuse my heart, madame. It is dead. Your heart dead, Andrea. You, so young and beautiful? I repeat to you, madame, nothing in the court, nothing in the world, is any more to me. Here I live like the herb or the flower, alone for myself. I entreat you to pardon me. This forgetfulness of the glorious vanities of the world is no crime. My confessor congratulates me on it every day. Then you like the convent? I embrace with pleasure a solitary life. Nothing remains which attracts you back to the world? Nothing. Mon Dieu, thought the queen, shall I fail? If nothing else will succeed, I must have recourse to entreaties, to beg her to accept Monsieur de Charny. Heavens, how unhappy I am! Andrea, she said, what you say takes from me the hope I had conceived. What hope, madame? Oh! If you are as decided as you appear to be, it is useless to speak. If your majesty would explain. You never regret what you have done? Never, madame. Then it is superfluous to speak, and yet I hoped to make you happy. Me? Yes, you, ingrate, but you know best your inclinations. Still, if your majesty would tell me— Oh, it is simple. I wished you to return to court. Never. You refuse me? Oh, madame, why should you wish me, sorrowful, poor, despised, avoided by everyone, incapable of inspiring sympathy in either sex? Huh, madame and dear mistress— Leave me here to become worthy to be accepted by God, for even he would reject me at present. But, said the queen, what I was about to propose you would have removed all these humiliations of which you complain. A marriage which would have made you one of our great ladies. A marriage? stammered Andrea. Yes. Oh, I refuse, I refuse. Andrea, cried the queen in a supplicating voice. Ah, no, I refuse. Marie Antoinette prepared herself with a fearfully palpitating heart for her last resource. But as she hesitated, Andrea said, But, madame, tell me the name of the man who is willing to think of me as his companion for life. Monsieur de Charny, said the queen with an effort. Monsieur de Charny? Yes, the nephew of Monsieur de Souffrain. It is he? cried Andrea with burning cheeks and sparkling eyes. He consents? He asks you in marriage. Oh, 
i accept i accept for i love him the queen became livid and sank back trembling whilst andrea kissed her hands bathing them with her tears oh i am ready murmured she come then cried the queen who felt as though her strength was failing her with a last effort to preserve appearances andrea left the room to prepare then marie antoinette cried with bitter sobs oh mon dieu how can one heart bear so much suffering and yet i should be thankful for does it not save my children and myself from shame end of chapter eighty two recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter eighty three of the queen's necklace by alexander dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain in which it is explained why the baron de tavernay grew fat meanwhile philippe was hastening the preparations for his departure he did not wish to witness the dishonor of the queen his first and only passion when all was ready he requested an interview with his father for the last three months the baron had been growing fat he seemed to feed on the scandals circulating at the court they were meat and drink to him when he received his son's message instead of sending for him he went to seek him in his room already full of the disorder consequent on packing philippe did not expect much sensibility from his father still he did not think he would be pleased andrea had already left him and it was one less to torment and he must feel a blank when his son went also therefore philippe was astonished to hear his father call out with a burst of laughter oh mon dieu he is going away i was sure of it i would have bet upon it well played philippe well played what is well played sir admirable repeated the old man you give me praises sir which i neither understand nor merit unless you are pleased at my departure and glad to get rid of me oh, <laughs> laughed the old man again i am not your dupe do you think i believe in your departure you do not believe really sir you surprise me yes it is surprising that i should have guessed you are right to pretend to leave without this ruse all probably would have been discovered monsieur i protest i do not understand one word of what you say to me where do you say you go to i go first to tavernet maison rouge very well but be prudent there are sharp eyes on you both and she is so fiery and incautious that you must be prudent for both what is your address in case i want to send you any pressing news tavernay monsieur tavernay nonsense i do not ask you for the address of your house in the park but choose some third address near here you who have managed so well for your love can easily manage this sir 
you play at enigmas and i cannot find the solution ah you are discreet beyond all bounds however keep your secrets tell me nothing of the huntsman's house nor the nightly walks with two dear friends nor the rose nor the kisses monsieur cried philippe mad with jealousy and rage will you hold your tongue well i know it all your intimacy with the queen and your meetings in the baths of apollo mon dieu our fortunes are assured for ever monsieur you cause me horror cried poor philippe hiding his face in his hands and indeed he felt it at hearing attributed to himself all the happiness of another all the rumors that the father had heard he had assigned to his son and believed that it was he that the queen loved and no one else hence his perfect contentment and happiness yes he went on some said it was rohan others that it was charny not one that it was tavernay oh you have acted well at this moment a carriage was heard to drive up and a servant entering said here is mademoiselle my sister cried philippe then another servant appeared and said that mademoiselle de tavernay wished to speak to her brother in the boudoir another carriage now came to the door who the devil comes now muttered the baron it is an evening of adventures monsieur le comte de charny cried the powerful voice of the porter at the gate conduct monsieur le comte to the drawing-room my father will see him and i will go to my sister what can he want here thought philippe as he went down end of chapter eighty three recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter eighty four of the Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Father and the Fiancee. Philippe hastened to the boudoir where his sister awaited him. She ran to embrace him with a joyous air. What is it, Andrea? cried he. Something which makes me happy. Oh, very happy, brother and you come back to announce it to me i come back for ever said andrea speak low sister there is or is going to be someone in the next room who might hear you who listen monsieur le comte de charny announced the servant he oh i know well what he comes for you know yes and soon i shall be summoned to hear what he has to say do you speak seriously my dear andrea listen philippe the queen has brought me suddenly back and i must go and change my dress for one fit for a fiance and saying this with a kiss to philippe she ran off philippe remained alone he could hear what passed in the adjoining room Monsieur de Tavernay entered and saluted the Count with a recherche, though stiff politeness. "'I come, monsieur,' said Charny, "'to 
make a request and beg you to excuse my not having brought my uncle with me which i know would have been more proper a request i have the honor continued charny in a voice full of emotion to ask the hand of mademoiselle andrea your daughter the baron opened his eyes in astonishment my daughter yes monsieur le baron if mademoiselle de tavernay feels no repugnance oh thought the old man philippe's favor is already so well known that one of his rivals wishes to marry his sister then aloud he said this request is such an honor to us monsieur le comte that i accede with much pleasure and as i should wish you to carry away a perfectly favorable answer i will send for my daughter monsieur interrupted the count rather coldly the queen has been good enough to consult mademoiselle de tavernay already and her reply was favorable ah said the baron more and more astonished it is the queen then yes monsieur who took the trouble to go to saint denis then uh, sir it only remains to acquaint you with my daughter's fortune she is not rich and before concluding it is needless monsieur le baron i am rich enough for both at this moment the door opened and philippe entered pale and wild-looking sir said he my father was right to wish to discuss these things with you while he goes upstairs to bring the papers i have something to say to you when they were left alone monsieur de charny said he how dare you come here to ask for the hand of my sister charny colored is it continued philippe in order to hide better your amours with another woman whom you love and who loves you is it that by becoming the husband of a woman who is always near your mistress you will have more facilities for seeing her sir you pass all bounds it is perhaps and this is what i believe that were i your brother-in-law you think my tongue would be tied about what i know of your past amours what you know yes cried philippe the huntsman's house hired by you your mysterious promenades in the park at night and the tender parting at the little gate monsieur in heaven's name oh sir i was concealed behind the baths of apollo when you came out arm in arm with the queen charny was completely overwhelmed for a time then after a few moments he said well sir even after all this i reiterate my demand for the hand of your sister i am not the base calculator you suppose me but the queen must be saved the queen is not lost because i saw her on your arm raising to heaven her eyes full of happiness because i know that she loves you that is no reason why my sister should be sacrificed monsieur de charny 
Monsieur, replied Charny, this morning the king surprised me at her feet. Mon Dieu! And she, pressed by his jealous questions, replied that I was kneeling to ask the hand of your sister. Therefore, if I do not marry her, the queen is lost. Do you now understand? A cry from the boudoir now interrupted them, followed by another from the antechamber. Charny ran to the boudoir. He saw there Andrea, dressed in white like a bride. She had heard all and had fainted. Philippe ran to where the other cry came from. It was his father, whose hopes this revelation of the queen's love for Charny had just destroyed. Struck by apoplexy, he had given his last sigh. Philippe, who understood it, looked at the corpse for a few minutes in silence, and then returned to the drawing-room, and there saw Charny watching the senseless form of his sister. He then said, "'My father has just expired, sir. I am now the head of the family. If my sister survive, I will give her to you in marriage.' Charny regarded the corpse of the baron with horror and the form of Andrea with despair. Philippe uttered a groan of agony, then continued, "'Monsieur de Charny, I make this engagement in the name of my sister, now lying senseless before us. She will give her happiness to the queen, and I, perhaps, some day, shall be happy enough to give my life for her. Adieu, Monsieur de Charny!' And taking his sister in his arms, he carried her into the next room. End of chapter 84 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 85 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas Translated by Henry L. Williams This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. After the Dragon, the Viper Oliva was preparing to fly, as Jean had arranged, when Beausire, warned by an anonymous letter, discovered her and carried her away. In order to trace them, Jean put all her powers in requisition. She preferred being able to watch over her own secret, and her disappointment was great when all her agents returned announcing a failure. At this time, she received in her hiding-place numerous messages from the Queen— she went by night to Barser Albe, and there remained for two days. At last she was traced in an express sent to take her. Then she learnt the arrest of the cardinal. The queen has been rash, thought she, in refusing to compromise with the cardinal or to pay the jewellers. But she did not know my power. Monsieur, said she to the officer who arrested her, do you love the queen? "'Certainly, madame.' "'Well, in the name of that love, I beg you to conduct me straight to her. Believe me, you will be doing her a service.' The man was persuaded and did so. The queen received her haughtily, for she began to suspect that her conduct had not been straightforward. She called in two ladies as witnesses of what was about to pass. "'You are found at last, madame,' said the queen.' 
Why did you hide? I did not hide, madame. Run away, then, if that pleases you better. That is to say that I quitted Paris. I had some little business at Bar sur Aube, and, to tell the truth, I did not know I was so necessary to your majesty as to be obliged to ask leave for an absence of eight days. Have you seen the king? No, madame. You shall see him. It will be a great honor for me, but your majesty seems very severe towards me. I am all trembling. Oh, madame, this is but the beginning. Do you know that Monsieur de Rohan has been arrested? They told me so, madame. You guess why? No, madame. You proposed to me that he should pay for a certain necklace. Did I accept or refuse? Refuse? Ha! Ah, said the queen, well pleased. Your majesty even paid one hundred thousand francs on account. Well, and afterwards? Afterwards, as your majesty could not pay, you sent it back to Monsieur Burmer. By whom? By me. And what did you do with it? I took it to the cardinal. And why to the cardinal instead of to the jewellers, as I told you? Because I thought he would be hurt if I returned it without letting him know. But how did you get a receipt from the jewellers? Monsieur de Rohan gave it to me. But why did you take a letter to them as coming from me? Because he gave it to me and asked me to do so. Is this, then, all his doing? What is, madame? The receipt and the letter are both forged. Forged, madame, cried Jeanne with much apparent astonishment. Well, you must be confronted with him to prove the truth. Why, madame? He himself demands it. He says he has sought you everywhere and that he wishes to prove that you have deceived him. Oh, then, madame, let us meet. You shall. You deny all knowledge of where the necklace is. How should I know, madame? You deny having aided the cardinal in his intrigues. I am a Valois, madame. But Monsieur de Rohan maintained before the king many calumnies which he said you would confirm. I do not understand. He declares he wrote to me. Jean did not reply. Do you hear? said the queen. Yes, madame. What do you reply? I will reply when I have seen him. But speak the truth now. Your majesty overwhelms me. That is no answer. I will give no other here. And she looked at the two ladies. The queen understood, but would not yield. She scorned to purchase anything by concession. Monsieur de Rohan, said the queen, was sent to the Bastille for saying too much. Take care, madame, that you are not sent for saying too little. 
Jean smiled. A pure conscience can brave persecution, she replied. The Bastille will not convict me of a crime I did not commit. Will you reply? Only to your majesty. Are you not speaking to me? Not alone. Ha! You fear scandal after being the cause of so much to me? What I did, said Jean, was done for you. What insolence! I submit to the insults of my queen. You will sleep in the Bastille to-night, madame. So be it. I will first pray to God to preserve your majesty's honor. The queen rose furiously and went into the next room. After having conquered the dragon, she said, I can crush the viper. End of chapter 85 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 86 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How it came to pass that Monsieur Beausire was tracked by the agents of Monsieur de Crosny. Madame de Lamotte was imprisoned as the Queen had threatened, and the whole affair created no little talk and excitement through France. Monsieur de Rohan lived at the Bastille like a prince. He had everything but liberty. He demanded to be confronted with Madame de Lamotte as soon as he heard of her arrest. This was done. She whispered to him, "'Send everyone away, and I will explain.' He asked this, but was refused. They said his counsel might communicate with her. She said to this gentleman that she was ignorant of what had become of the necklace, but that they might well have given it to her in recompense for the services she had rendered the queen and the cardinal, which were well worth a million and a half. The cardinal turned pale on hearing this repeated, and felt how much they were in Jean's power. He was determined not to accuse the queen, although his friends endeavored to convince him that it was his only way to prove his innocence of the robbery. Jean said that she did not wish to accuse either the queen or the cardinal, but that, if they persisted in making her responsible for the necklace, she would do so to show that they were interested in accusing her of falsehood. Then Monsieur de Rohan expressed all his contempt for her, and said that he began to understand much of Jeanne's conduct, but not the Queen's. All this was reported to Marie Antoinette. She ordered another private examination of the parties, but gained nothing from it. Jeanne denied everything to those sent by the Queen, but when they were gone she altered her tone and said, if they do not leave me alone, I will tell all. The cardinal said nothing and brought no accusations, but rumors began to spread fast, and the question soon became not, has the queen stolen the necklace, but has she allowed someone else to steal it because she knew all about her amours? Madame de Lamotte had involved her in a maze, from which there seemed no honorable exit, but she determined not to lose courage. She began to come to the conclusion that the cardinal was an honest man, and did not wish to ruin her, but was acting like herself only to preserve his honor. They strove earnestly but ineffectually to trace the necklace. All opinions were against Jean, and she began to fear that even if she dragged down the queen and cardinal, 
she should be quite overwhelmed under the ruins she had caused, and she had not even at hand the fruits of her dishonesty to corrupt her judges with. Affairs were in this state when a new episode changed the face of things. Oliva and Monsieur Beausire were living happy and rich in a country house, when one day Beausire, going out hunting, fell into the company of two of the agents of Monsieur de Crosny, whom he had scattered all over the country. They recognized Beausire immediately, but, but as it was Oliva whom they most wanted, they did not arrest him there, but only joined the chase. Beausire, seeing two strangers, called the huntsmen and asked who they were. He replied that he did not know, but if he had permission, would send them away. On his questioning them, they said they were friends of that gentleman, pointing to Monsieur Beausire. Then the man brought them to him, saying, Monsieur de Linville, these gentlemen say they are friends of yours. Ah, you are called de Linville now, dear Monsieur Beausire. Beausire trembled. He had concealed his name so carefully. He sent away the huntsmen and asked them who they were. Take us home with you, and we will tell you. Home? Yes. Do not be inhospitable. Beausire was frightened, but still feared to refuse these men who knew him. End of chapter 86. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 87 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Turtles Are Caged Osire, on entering the house, made a noise to attract Oliva's attention, for though he knew nothing about her later escapades, he knew enough about the ball at the opera and the morning at Monsieur Mesmer's to make him fear letting her be seen by strangers. Accordingly, Oliva heard the dogs bark, looked out, and seeing Beausire returning with two strangers, did not come to meet him as usual. Unfortunately, the servant asked if he should call Madame. The men rallied him about the lady whom he had concealed. He let them laugh, but did not offer to call her. They dined, then Beausire asked where they had met him before. "'We are,' replied they, friends of one of your associates in a little affair about the Portuguese embassy. Beausire turned pale. Ah, said he, and you came on your friend's part. Yes, dear Monsieur Beausire, to ask for ten thousand francs. Gentlemen, replied Beausire, you cannot think I have such a sum in the house. "'Very likely not, monsieur. We do not ask for impossibilities. How much have you?' "'Not more than fifty or sixty louis.' "'We will take them to begin with.' "'I will go and fetch them,' said Beausire. But they did not choose to let him leave the room without them, so they caught hold of him by the coat, saying, "'Oh, no, dear Monsieur Beausire, do not leave us.' "'But how am I to get the money if I do not leave you?' "'We will go with you.' "'But it is in my wife's bedroom.' "'Ah!' cried one of them. "'You hide your wife from us.' "'Are we not presentable?' asked the other. "'We wish to see her.' "'You are tipsy, and I will turn you out.' 
said Beausire. They laughed. Now you shall not even have the money I promised, said he, emboldened by what he thought their intoxication, and he ran out of the room. They followed and caught him. He cried out, and at the sound a door opened and a woman looked out with a frightened air. On seeing her, the men released Beausire and gave a cry of exultation, for they recognized her immediately, who resembled the Queen of France so strongly. Beausire, who believed them for a moment disarmed by the sight of a woman, was soon cruelly undeceived. One of the men approached Oliva and said, "'I arrest you.' "'Arrest her? Why?' cried Beausire. "'Because?' It is Monsieur de Crosny's orders. A thunderbolt falling between the lovers would have frightened them less than this declaration. At last Beausire said, You came to arrest me? No, it was a chance. Never mind, you might have arrested me, and for sixty louis you were about to leave me at liberty? Oh, no, we should have asked another sixty. However, for one hundred we will do so. And, madame? Oh, that is quite a different affair. She is worth uh, two hundred louis, said Beausire. They laughed again, and this time Beausire began to understand this terrible laugh. Three hundred, four hundred, a thousand! See, I will give you one thousand louis to leave her at liberty! They did not answer. Is that not enough? Ah, you know I have money, and you want to make me pay. Well, I will give you two thousand louis. It will make both your fortunes. For one hundred thousand crowns we would not give up this woman. Monsieur de Rohan will give us five hundred thousand francs for her, and the queen one million. Now we must go. You doubtless have a carriage of some kind here have it prepared for madame we will take you also for form's sake but on the way you can escape and we will shut our eyes beausire replied where she goes i will go i will never leave her oh so much the better the more prisoners we bring monsieur de crosny the better he will be pleased a quarter of an hour after Beausire's carriage started with the two lovers in it. One may imagine the effect of this capture on Monsieur de Crosny. The agents probably did not receive the one million francs they hoped for, but there is reason to believe they were satisfied. Monsieur de Crosny went to Versailles, followed by another carriage well guarded. He asked to see the queen and was instantly admitted. She judged from his face that he had good news for her and felt the first sensation of joy she had experienced for a month. "'Madame,' said Monsieur de Crosny, "'have you a room here where you can see without being seen?' "'Oh, yes, my library.' "'Well, madame, I have a carriage below, in which is someone whom I wish to introduce into the castle unseen by anyone.' "'Nothing more easy.' replied the queen, ringing to give her orders. All was executed as he wished. Then she conducted Monsieur de Crosny to the library, where, concealed from view behind a large screen, 
she soon saw enter a form which made her utter a cry of surprise it was oliva dressed in one of her own favorite costumes a green dress with broad stripes of black moire green satin slippers with high heels and her hair dressed like her own and might have been herself reflected in the glass what says your majesty to this resemblance asked monsieur de crosny triumphantly incredible said the queen she then thought to herself ah charny why are you not here what does your majesty wish nothing sir but that the king should know and monsieur de provence see her shall he not madame thanks monsieur de crosny you hold now i think the clue to the whole plot nearly so madame and monsieur de rohan knows nothing yet ha cried the woman in this woman doubtless lies all his error possibly madame but if it be his error it is the crime of some one else seek well sir the honour of france is in your hands believe me worthy of the trust at present the accused parties deny everything i shall wait for the proper time to overwhelm them with this living witness that i now hold madame de lamotte knows nothing of this capture she accuses monsieur de cogliostro of having excited the cardinal to say what he did and what does monsieur de cogliostro say he has promised to come to me this morning he is a dangerous man but a useful one and attacked by madame de lamotte i am in hopes he will sting back again you hope for revelations i do how so sir tell me everything which can reassure me these are my reasons madame madame de lamotte lived in the rue saint cloud and monsieur de cogliostro just opposite her so i think her movements cannot have been unnoticed by him but if your majesty will excuse me it is close to the time he appointed to meet me go monsieur go and assure yourself of my gratitude when he was gone the queen burst into tears my justification begins said she i shall soon read my triumph in all faces but the one i most cared to know me innocent him i shall not see monsieur de crosny drove back to paris where monsieur de cogliostro waited for him he knew all for he had discovered beausire's retreat and was on the road to see him and induce him to leave france when he met the carriage containing beausire and oliva beausire saw the count and the idea crossed his mind that he might help them he therefore accepted the offer of the police agents gave them the hundred louis and made his escape in spite of the tears shed by oliva saying i go to try and save you he ran after monsieur de cogliostro's carriage which he soon overtook as the count had stopped it being useless to proceed 
Beausire soon told his story. Cagliostro listened in silence, then said, "'She is lost.' "'Why so?' Then Cagliostro told him all he did not already know, all the intrigues in the park. "'Oh, save her!' cried Beausire. "'And I will give her to you, if you love her still.' "'My friend,' replied Cogliostro, you deceive yourself i never loved mademoiselle oliva i had but one aim that of weaning her from the life of debauchery she was leading with you but said beausire that astonishes you know that i belong to a society whose object is moral reform ask her if ever she heard from my mouth one word of gallantry or if my services were not disinterested. Oh, monsieur, but will you save her? I will try, but it will depend on yourself. I will do anything. Then return with me to Paris, and if you follow my instructions implicitly, we may succeed in saving her. I only impose one condition, which I will tell you when I reach home. I promise beforehand, but can I see her again? I think so, and you can tell her what I say to you. In two hours they overtook the carriage containing Oliva, and Beausire bought for fifty louis permission to embrace her and tell her all the Count had said. The agents admired this violent love and hoped for more louis, but Beausire was gone. Cogliostro drove him to Paris. We will now return to Monsieur de Crosny. This gentleman knew a good deal about Cogliostro, his former names, his pretensions to ubiquity and perpetual regeneration, his secrets in alchemy and magnetism, and looked upon him as a great charlatan. Monsieur, said he to Cogliostro, you asked me for an audience i have returned from versailles to meet you sir i thought you would wish to question me about what is passing so i came to you question you said the magistrate affecting surprise on what monsieur replied cogliostro you are much occupied about madame de lamotte and the missing necklace have you found it <laughs> asked monsieur de crosny laughing no sir but madame de lamotte lived in the rue saint claude i know opposite you oh if you know all about oliva i have nothing more to tell you who is oliva you do not know then, sir, imagine a young girl, very pretty, with blue eyes and an oval face, a style of beauty, something like Her Majesty, for instance. Well, sir, this young girl led a bad life. It gave me pain to see it, for she was once in the service of an old friend of mine, Monsieur de Tavernay, but I weary you oh no pray go on well 
Oliva led not only a bad life, but an unhappy one, with a fellow she called her lover, who beat and robbed her. "'Beau sire,' said the magistrate. "'Ah, you know him. You are still more a magician than I am. Well, one day, when Beau sire had beaten the poor girl more than usual, she fled to me for refuge.' I pitied her and gave her shelter in one of my houses. "'In your house?' cried Monsieur de Crosny in surprise. "'Oh, and why not? I am a bachelor,' said Cogliostro with an air which quite deceived Monsieur de Crosny. "'That is then the reason why my agents could not find her.' "'What? You were seeking this little girl?' Had she then been guilty of any crime? No, sir, uh, no, pray go on. Oh, uh, I have done. I lodged her at my house, and that is all. No, sir, for you just now associated her name with that of Madame de Lamotte. Only as neighbors. But, sir, this um, Oliver whom you say you had in your house, I found in the country with Beausire. With Beausire? Ah, then I have wronged Madame de Lamotte. How so, sir? Why, just as I thought I had hopes of reforming Oliva and bringing her back to an honest life, someone carried her away from me. That is strange. Is it not? And I firmly believed it to be Madame de Lamotte. But as you found her with Beausire, it was not she, and all her signals and correspondence with Oliva meant nothing. With Oliva? Yes. They met? Yes. Madame de Lamotte found a way to take Oliva out every night. Are you sure of this? I saw and heard her. Oh, sir, you tell me what I would have paid for with one thousand francs a word. But you are a friend of Monsieur de Rohan? Yes. You ought to know how far he was connected with this affair. I do not wish to know. But you know the object of these nightly excursions of Madame de Lamotte and Oliva? Of that also I wish to be ignorant. Sir, I only wish to ask you one more question. Have you proofs of the correspondence of Madame de Lamotte and Oliva? Plenty. What are they? Notes which Madame de Lamotte used to throw over to Oliva with a crossbow. Several of them did not reach their destination and were picked up either by myself or my servants in the street. Sir, you will be ready to produce them if called upon. Certainly, they are perfectly innocent and cannot injure anyone. And have you any other proofs of intimacy? I know that she had a method of entering my house to see Oliva, 
I saw her myself, just after Oliver had disappeared, and my servants saw her also. But what did she come for if Oliver was gone? I did not know. I saw her come out of a carriage at the corner of the street. My idea was that she wished to attach Oliver to her and keep her near her. And you let her do it? Why not? She is a great lady and received at court. Why should I have prevented her taking charge of Oliver and taking her off my hands? What did she say when she found that Oliver was gone? She appeared distressed. You suppose that Beausire carried her off? I suppose so, for you tell me you found them together. I did not suspect him before, for he did not know where she was. She must have let him know herself. I think not, as she had fled from him. I think Madame de Lamotte must have sent him a key. Ah, what day was it? The evening of St. Louis. Monsieur, you have rendered a great service to me and to the state. I am happy to hear it. You shall be thanked as you deserve. I may count on the production of the proofs you mention. I am ready, sir, to assist justice at all times. As Cogliostro left, he muttered, Ah, Countess, you tried to accuse me. Take care of yourself. Meanwhile, Monsieur de Bretoy was sent by the king to examine Madame de Lamotte. She declared that she had proofs of her innocence which she would produce at the proper time. She also declared that she would only speak the truth in the presence of the cardinal. She was told that the cardinal laid all the blame upon her. "'Tell him, then,' she said, "'that I advise him not to persist in such a foolish system of defence." "'Whom, then, do you accuse?' asked Monsieur de Bretoy. "'I accuse no one,' was her reply. A report was spread at last that the diamonds were being sold in England by Monsieur Rateau de Villette. This man was soon found and arrested and brought over and confronted with Jeanne. To her utter confusion, he acknowledged that he had forged a receipt from the jewellers and a letter from the Queen at the request of Madame de Lamotte. She denied furiously and declared that she had never seen Monsieur Rateau. Monsieur de Crosny produced as witness a coachman who swore to having driven her on the day named to the house of Monsieur Rateau. Also, one of the servants of Monsieur de Cogliostro deposed to having seen this man on the box of Jean's carriage on the night that she came to his master's house. Now, Jean began to abuse the Count, and accused him of having inspired Monsieur de Rohan with the ideas inimical to the royal dignity. Monsieur de Rohan defended him, and Jean at once plainly accused the cardinal of a violent love for the queen. Monsieur de Cogliostro requested to be incarcerated and allowed to prove his innocence publicly. Then the queen caused to be published all the reports made to the king about the nocturnal promenades, and requested Monsieur de Crosny to state all that he knew about it. This public avowal overturned all Jean's plans— 
and she denied having assisted at any meetings between the queen and the cardinal. This declaration would have cleared the queen had it been possible to attach any credence to what this woman said. While Jeanne continued to deny that she had ever been in the park, they brought forward Oliva at last, a living witness of all the falsehoods of the countess. When Oliva was shown to the cardinal, the blow was dreadful. He saw at last how infamously he had been played upon. This man, so full of delicacy and noble passions, discovered that an adventuress had led him to insult and despise the Queen of France, a woman whom he loved and who was innocent. He would have shed all his blood at the feet of Marie Antoinette to make atonement, but he could not even acknowledge his mistake without owning that he loved her. Even his excuse would involve an offence. So he was obliged to keep silent and allow Jeanne to deny everything. Oliva confessed all without reserve. At last, Jeanne, driven from every hold, confessed that she had deceived the cardinal, but declared that it was done with the consent of the queen who watched and enjoyed the scene hidden behind the trees. To this story she kept. The queen could never disprove it and there were plenty of people willing to believe it true. End of chapter 87 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 88 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas Translated by Henry L. Williams This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Last Hope Lost Here the affair therefore rested, for Jean was determined to share the blame with someone, as she could not turn it from herself. All her calculations had been defeated by the frankness with which the Queen had met, and made public, every accusation against her. At last Jean wrote the following letter to the Queen. Madame, in spite of my painful position and rigorous treatment, I have not uttered a complaint. All that has been tried to extort avowals from me has failed— to make me compromise my sovereign. However, although persuaded that my constancy and discretion will facilitate my release from my present position, the friends of the cardinal make me fear I shall become his victim. A long imprisonment, endless questions, and the shame and despair of being accused of such crimes begin to exhaust my courage, and I tremble lest my constancy should at last give way. Your Majesty might end all this by a few words to Monsieur de Bretoya, who could give the affair in the King's eye any color Your Majesty likes, without compromising you. It is the fear of being compelled to reveal all, which makes me beg Your Majesty to take steps to relieve me from my painful position. I am, with profound respect, your humble servant, Jean de la Motte. Jean calculated either that this letter would frighten the queen, or, what was more probable, would never reach her hands, but be carried by the messenger to the governor of the Bastille, where it could hardly fail to tell against the queen. She then wrote to the cardinal, "'I cannot conceive, Monseigneur, why you persist in not speaking plainly. It seems to me that your best plan would be to confide fully in our judges. As for me—' I am resolved to be silent if you will not second me. But why do you not speak? Explain all the circumstances of this mysterious affair, for if I were to speak first and you not support me, 
I should be sacrificed to the vengeance of her who wishes to ruin us. But I have written her a letter which will perhaps induce her to spare us, who have nothing to reproach ourselves with. This letter she gave to the cardinal at their last confrontation. He grew pale with anger at her audacity, and left the room. Then Jeanne produced her letter to the queen and begged the Abbé Lacal, chaplain of the Bastille, who had accompanied the cardinal and was devoted to him, to take charge of it and convey it to the queen. He refused to take it. She declared that if he did not, she would produce Monsieur de Rohan's letters to the queen. And take care, sir, added she, for they will cause his head to fall on the scaffold. At this moment the cardinal reappeared. Madame, said he, let my head fall, so that I have the satisfaction of seeing also the scaffold which you mount as a thief and a forger. Come, Abbe. He went away, leaving Jeanne devoured with rage and disappointment at her failures at every turn. End of chapter 88. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 89 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Baptism of the Little Beau Sire Madame de Lamotte had deceived herself on all points, Cogliostro upon none. Once in the Bastille he saw a good opportunity for working at the ruin of the monarchy, which he had been trying to undermine for so many years. He prepared the famous letter, dated from London, which appeared a month after. In this letter, after attacking King, Queen, Cardinal, and even Monsieur de Bretoya, he said, Yes, I repeat, now free after my imprisonment there is no crime that would not be expiated by six months in the Bastille. They ask me if I shall ever return to France. Yes, I reply, when the Bastille becomes a public promenade. You have all that is necessary to happiness, you Frenchmen. A fertile soil and genial climate. Good hearts, gay tempers, genius and grace. You only want, my friends, one little thing. To feel sure of sleeping quietly in your beds when you are innocent. Oliva kept her word faithfully to Cogliostro and uttered no word that could compromise him. She threw all the blame on Madame de Lamotte and asserted vehemently her own innocent participation in what she believed to be a joke, played on a gentleman unknown to her. All this time she did not see Beausire, but she had a souvenir of him, for in the month of May she gave birth to a son. Beausire was allowed to attend the baptism which took place in the prison, which he did with much pleasure, swearing that if Oliva ever recovered her liberty, he would make her his wife. End of chapter 89 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 90 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas Translated by Henry L. Williams This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Trial the day at last arrived, after long investigations, when the judgment of the court was to be pronounced. All the accused had been removed to the conciergerie to be in readiness to appear when called on. Oliva continued to be frank and timid, Cogliostro, tranquil and indifferent, 
Rateau, despairing, cowardly, and weeping, and Jeanne, violent, menacing, and venomous. She had managed to interest the keeper and his wife, and thus obtain more freedom and indulgences. The first who took his place on the wooden stool, which was appropriated for the accused, was Rateau, who asked pardon with tears and prayers, declared all he knew, and avowed his crimes. He interested no one. He was simply a knave and a coward. After him came Madame de Lamotte. Her appearance produced a great sensation. At the sight of the disgraceful seat prepared for her, she who called herself a Valois, threw around her furious looks, but, meeting curiosity instead of sympathy, repressed her rage. When interrogated, she continued as before to throw out insinuations, stating nothing clearly about her own innocence. When questioned as to the letters which she was reported to have said passed between the queen and the cardinal, she answered that she did not wish to compromise the queen, and that the cardinal was best able to answer this question himself. "'Ask him to produce them,' said she. "'I wish to say nothing about them.' She inspired in nearly all a feeling of distrust and anger. When she retired, her only consolation was the hope of seeing the cardinal in the seat after her, and her rage was extreme when she saw it taken away and an armchair brought for his use. The cardinal advanced, accompanied by four attendants, and the governor of the Bastille walked by his side. At his entrance, he was greeted by a long murmur of sympathy and respect. It was echoed by loud shouts from without. It was the people who cheered him. He was pale and much moved. The president spoke politely to him and begged him to sit down. When he spoke, it was with a trembling voice and a troubled and even humble manner. He gave excuses rather than proofs, and supplications more than reasons, but said little, and seemed to be deserted by his former eloquence. Oliva came next. The wooden stool was brought back for her. Many people trembled at seeing this living image of the queen sitting there as a criminal. Then Cogliostro was called, but almost as a matter of form, and dismissed immediately. The court then announced that the proceedings were concluded, and the deliberations about to begin. All the prisoners were locked for the night in the conciergerie. The sentence was not pronounced till the following day. Jean seated herself early at the window, and before long heard a tremendous shouting from the crowd collected to hear the sentence. This continued for some time, when she distinctly heard a passer-by say, "'A grand day for the cardinal!' "'For the cardinal?' thought Jean. "'Then he is acquitted.' And she ran to Monsieur Hubert, the keeper, to ask, but he did not know. "'He must be acquitted,' she said. They said it was a grand day for him, but I— "'Well, madame,' said he, "'if he is acquitted, why should you not be acquitted also?' Jean returned to the window. "'You are wrong, madame,' said madame Hubert to her. "'You only become agitated without perfectly understanding what is passing. Pray—' Remain quiet until your counsel comes to communicate your fate. I cannot, said Jean, continuing to listen what passed in the street. A woman passed, gaily dressed with a bouquet in her hand. 
he shall have my bouquet the dear man said she oh i would embrace him if i could and i also said another he is so handsome said a third it must be the cardinal said jean he is acquitted and she said this with so much bitterness that the keeper said but madame do you not wish the poor prisoner to be released jean unwilling to lose their sympathy replied oh you misunderstand me do you believe me so envious and wicked as to wish ill to my companions in misfortune oh no i trust he is free it is only impatience to learn my own fate and you tell me nothing we do not know replied they then other loud cries were heard jean could see the crowd pressing round an open carriage which was going slowly along flowers were thrown hats waved some even mounted on the steps to kiss the hand of a man who sat grave and half frightened at his own popularity this was the cardinal another man sat by him and cries of vive cogliostro were mingled with the shouts for monsieur de rohan jeanne began to gather courage from all this sympathy for those whom she chose to call the queen's victims but suddenly the thought flashed on her they are already set free and no one has even been to announce my sentence and she trembled new shouts now drew her attention to a coach which was also advancing followed by a crowd and in this jean recognized oliva who sat smiling with delight at the people who cheered her holding her child in her arms then jean seeing all these people free happy and fetid began to utter loud complaints that she was not also liberated or at least told her fate calm yourself madame said madame hubert but tell me for you must know madame i implore you you see how i suffer we are forbidden madame is it so frightful that you dare not oh no calm yourself then speak will you be patient and not betray us i swear well the cardinal is acquitted i know it monsieur de cogliostro and mademoiselle oliva are also acquitted monsieur Rateau condemned to the galleys and i cried jeanne furiously madame you promise to be patient see speak i am calm banished said the woman feebly a flash of delight shone for a moment in the eyes of the countess then she pretended to faint and threw herself into the arms of madame hubert what would it have been thought she if i had told her the truth banishment thought jeanne that is liberty riches vengeance it is what i hoped for i have won end of chapter ninety Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.
Chapter ninety two of the Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Execution Jean waited for her counsel to come and announce her fate, but being now at ease, said to herself, What do I care that I am thought more guilty than Monsieur de Rohan? I am banished. That is to say, I can carry away my million and a half with me and live under the orange trees of seville during the winter and in germany or england in the summer then i can tell my own story and uh, young rich and celebrated live as i please among my friends pleasing herself with these notions she commenced settling all her future plans the disposal of her diamonds and her establishment in london this brought to her mind monsieur Rateau. poor fellow thought she it is he who pays for all. Someone must suffer, and it always falls on the humblest instrument. Poor Rateau pays now for his pamphlets against the Queen. He has led a hard life of blows and escapes, and now it terminates with the galleys. She dined with Monsieur and Madame Hubert, and was quite gay, but they did not respond and were silent and uneasy. Jean, however, felt so happy that she cared little for the manner towards her, after dinner she asked when they were coming to read her sentence monsieur hubert said that they were probably waiting till she returned to her room she therefore rose to go when madame hubert ran to her and took her hands looking at her with an expression of so much pity and sympathy that it struck her for a moment with terror she was about to question her but hubert took her hand and led her from the room when she reached her own apartment she found eight soldiers waiting outside. She felt surprised, but went in and allowed the man to lock her up as usual. Soon, however, the door opened again, and one of the turnkeys appeared. "'Will madame please to follow me?' said he. "'Where?' "'Below.' "'What for? What do they want with me?' "'Madame, Monsieur Violet, your counsel wishes to speak to you.' why does he not come here madame he has received letters from versailles and wishes to show them to you letters from versailles thought jeanne perhaps the queen has interested herself for me since the sentence was passed wait a little she said till i arrange my dress in five minutes she was ready perhaps she thought Monsieur Violet has come to get me to leave France at once, and the Queen is anxious to facilitate the departure of so dangerous an enemy. She followed the turnkey downstairs, and they entered a room which looked like a vault. It was damp and almost dark. Sir, said she, trying to overcome her terror, where is Monsieur Violet? The man did not reply. What do you want? continued she have you anything to say to me you have chosen a very singular place for a rendezvous we are waiting for monsieur violet he said it is not possible that monsieur violet should wish for me to wait for him here all at once another door which jeanne had not before observed opened and three men entered jeanne looked at them in surprise and with growing terror one of them who was dressed in black with a roll of papers in his hand, advanced and said, 
you are jean de saint remy de valois wife of marc antoine nicolas count de la motte yes sir born at fondette on the twenty-second of july seventeen fifty six yes sir you live at paris rue st cloud yes sir but why these questions madame i am the registrar of the court and i am come to read you the sentence of the court of the thirty-first of may seventeen eighty six jean trembled again and now looked at the other two men one had a gray dress with steel buttons the other a fur cap on and an apron which seemed to her spotted with blood she drew back but the registrar said on your knees madame if you please on my knees cried jean i at valois it is the order madame but sir it is an unheard-of thing except where some degrading sentence has been pronounced and banishment is not such i did not tell you you were sentenced to banishment said he gravely but to what then i will tell you madame when you are on your knees never madame i only follow my instructions never i tell you madame it is the order that when the condemned refuse to kneel they should be forced to do it force to a woman there is no distinction in the eyes of justice ha huh, cried jean this is the queen's doings i recognize the hands of an enemy you are wrong to accuse the queen she has nothing to do with the orders of the court come madame i beg you to spare me the necessity of violence and kneel down never and she planted herself firmly in the corner of the room the registrar then signed to the two other men who approaching seized her and in spite of her cries dragged her into the middle of the room but she bounded up again let me stand said she and i will listen patiently madame whenever criminals are punished by whipping they kneel to receive the sentence whipping screamed jean miserable wretch how dare you the men forced her on her knees once more and held her down but she struggled so furiously that they called out read quickly monsieur for we cannot hold her i will never hear such an infamous sentence she cried and indeed she drowned his voice so effectually with her screams that although he read not a word could be heard he replaced his papers in his pocket and she thinking he had finished stopped her cries then he said and the sentence shall be executed at the place of executions corps de justice publicly screamed she monsieur de paris i deliver you this woman said the registrar addressing the man with the leathern apron who is this man cried jean in a fright the executioner 
replied the registrar. The two men then took hold of her to lead her out, but her resistance was so violent that they were obliged to drag her along by force, and she never ceased uttering the most frantic cries. They took her thus into the court called Cour de Justice, where there was a scaffold, and which was crowded with spectators. On a platform raised about eight feet was a post garnished with iron rings and with a ladder to mount to it. This place was surrounded with soldiers. When she appeared, cries of, "'Here she is!' mingled with much abuse were heard from the crowd. Numbers of the partisans of Monsieur de Rohan had assembled to hoot her, and cries of, "'A balamot! La forger!' were heard on every side, and those who tried to express pity for her were soon silenced. Then she cried in a loud voice, "'Do you know who I am? I am the blood of your kings. They strike in me, not a criminal, but a rival, not only a rival, but an accomplice. Yes,' repeated she, as the people kept silence to kept listen, "'an accomplice. They punish one who knows the secrets of—' take care interrupted the registrar she turned and saw the executioner with the whip in his hand at this sight she forgot her desire to captivate the multitude and even her hatred and sinking on her knees she said have pity and seized his hand but he raised the other and let the whip fall lightly on her shoulders she jumped up and was about to try and throw herself off the scaffold when she saw the other man who was drawing from a fire a hot iron. At this sight she uttered a perfect howl, which was echoed by the people. "'Help! Help!' she cried, trying to shake off the cord with which they were tying her hands. The executioner at last forced her on her knees and tore open her dress, but she cried with a voice which was heard through all the tumult. "'Cowardly Frenchman! You do not defend me, but let me be tortured!' oh it is my own fault if i had said all i knew of the queen i should have been she could say no more for she was gagged by the attendants then two men held her while the executioner performed his office at the touch of the iron she fainted and was carried back insensible to the conciergerie when the crowd gradually dispersed End of chapter ninety one Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 92 of The Queen's Necklace by Alexander Dumas. Translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Marriage. On the same day at noon, the king entered a drawing room where the queen was sitting in full dress, but pale through her rouge, and surrounded by a party of ladies and gentlemen. He glanced frequently toward the door. "'Are not the young couple ready? I believe it is noon,' he said. "'Sire, Monsieur de Charny is waiting in the gallery for Your Majesty's orders,' said the Queen with a violent effort. "'Oh, let him come in.' The Queen turned from the door. "'The bride ought to be here also,' continued the King. "'It is time.' "'Your Majesty must excuse Mademoiselle de Tavernay if she is late,' replied Monsieur de Charny, advancing. "'For since the death of her father she has not left her bed until to-day, and she fainted when she did so.' "'This dear child loved her father so much,' replied the King, 
but we hope a good husband will console her monsieur de bretoyer said he turning to that gentleman have you made out the order of banishment for monsieur de cogliostro yes sire and that de la motte is it not to-day she is to be branded at this moment andrea appeared dressed in white like a bride and with cheeks nearly as white as her dress she advanced leaning on her brother's arm monsieur de suffren leading his nephew came to meet her and then drew back to allow her to approach the king mademoiselle said louis taking her hand i begged of you to hasten this marriage instead of waiting until the time of your mourning had expired that i might have the pleasure of assisting at the ceremony for to-morrow i and the queen commence a tour through france and he led andrea up to the queen who could hardly stand and did not raise her eyes the king then putting andrea's hand into philippe's said gentlemen to the chapel and they began to move the queen kneeled on her prie-dieu her face buried in her hands praying for strength charny though pale as death feeling that all eyes were upon him appeared calm and strong andrea remained immovable as a statue she did not pray she had nothing to ask to hope for or to fear the ceremony over the king kissed andrea on the forehead saying madame la comtesse go to the queen she wishes to give you a wedding present oh murmured andrea to philippe it is too much i can bear no more i cannot do that courage sister one effort more i cannot philippe if she speaks to me i shall die then uh, you will be happier than i for i cannot die andrea said no more but went to the queen she found her in her chair with closed eyes and clasped hands seeming more dead than alive except for the shudders which shook from her from time to time andrea waited tremblingly to hear her speak but after a minute she rose slowly and took from the table a paper which she put into andrea's hands andrea opened it and read andrea you have saved me my honor comes from you my life belongs to you in the name of this honor which has cost you so dear i swear to you that you may call me sister without blushing this paper is the pledge of my gratitude the dowry which i give you your heart is noble and will thank me for this gift marie antoinette de lorraine d'autriche andrea looked at the queen and saw tears falling from her eyes she seemed expecting an answer but andrea putting the letter in the fire turned and left the room then charny who was waiting for her took her hand and they each pale and silent left the room two travelling carriages were in the courtyard andrea got into one and then said sir i believe you go to picardy yes madame and i to where my mother lies dead adieu monsieur charny bowed but did not reply and andrea drove off charny himself after giving his hand to philippe got into the other and also drove off then philippe cried in a tone of anguish my task is done and he too vanished end of chapter ninety two recording by john van stan savannah georgia
End of the Marie Antoinette Romances, Volume 3, The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. Thanks for listening.